Welcome to Built to Play, your dose of video game news and culture. I'm Armadek Bali. And I'm Daniel Rosen. This week, YouTube networks are on the rise, and China has invented the world's funnest box for your money back. Also, King goes mad with power, Ubisoft Toronto blows our minds, and PlayStation Home still exists? Who knew? Plus, we reached back into our vector bag and found you some more interviews. Alex Myers talks about military violence and Counter-Strike. Angela Washko discusses feminism and World of Warcraft. And the vector organizers tell us all about running the whole thing. But first, let's bid a fond, confusing farewell to Namco High. So after three years, Namco Bandai's strange webcomics media studio is closing its doors. Uh, according to an official statement, the goal of Shifty Look was to reestablish old properties before handing the reins to Namco Bandai, pro- Namco Bandai proper to make games out of them. We originally got the Shifty Look project going at Namco Bandai back in fall 2011. The idea was to take the unused, sleeping video game characters of our past and bring them first with webcomics, and then once they had gotten enough traction, expand into other media like web animation, games, and merchandise. Which did sort of happen. I mean, they had a bunch of webcomics. They had um, a really solid Galaga and Digda comic by Ryan North, uh, Chris Hastings, and... um... Uh, Anthony Clark, and they had a Valkyrie comic from Ashley Davis. There's a lot of really solid kind of comics based on Namco properties you don't remember existing, like Bravo Man, yeah. which got its own, like, I think, web series and iOS game. Uh, as well, they announced recently that they're going to be making a um, Wonder Momo anime and game. Like, considering the properties they were given, like, they did such a stellar job, all yeah. things considered. Like, you gotta fi- you gotta figure like expansions of video games into other media rarely goes well, except mm-hmm. maybe with in Japan where they have a bigger like games are often more tied into anime and light novels and stuff like that from the get go. But like there was a Hitman movie, guys. Yeah, there was a Super Mario Brothers movie, guys. <sighs> and and there's well, I mean, there's the Super Mario movie and that Street Fighter movie are very different from the Hitman movie, and that came in the point when well, we can do anything. Hitman came when we knew you can't make video game movies. There's a Max Payne movie. Yeah, and <laughs> that that Max Payne movie is incredible. But like this was. Like, this stuff was fairly successful for what it was going for. Yeah, and, I mean, they still, even though they're closing, they still plan on releasing that Wonder Momo game and anime somehow. Um, uh, Bravo Man will be available on the App Store and Android Play Store and Amazon App Store until March 30th. Um, DLC will stop being sold, I think, on the 12th, which is today, I think. Um, and uh, Namco High, the, serv- the servers for Namco High will be up until June 30th. So I guess that really bites if you bought DLC. I wonder what the real heavy costs of Namco High were because I I, I gotta wonder if Andrew Hussey charges like what I mean his I have to imagine right? I have to imagine he was paid for it wasn't it couldn't have been a pro bono project and no. look at all the webcomic artists these are people who don't you know these are people who don't need to work for exposure these were people who are known in you know webcomics and writing like one of the writers was um, Brian Clevinger who writes uh, yeah, Atomic yeah. Robo like these are professional writers yeah so it's not like these guys were just throwing it out to people who they say, oh you can here's a bone but mm-hmm. the um, with Andrew Hussey, I mean, he he got involved. He supposedly got involved pretty early in the project, when, and then he was the one who submitted the idea for a dating sim. Um, but like, I don't know. The, it does, Namco High was a fun project that we've seen from beginning to end. It's just kind of uh, disappointing that like it's a funny joke, but right, you, you it know? wasn't. We I think we both tried to play through it. Yeah, and we weren't. Ter- we were impressed that it existed, but not terribly impressed by it in of itself. Yeah. 
Um, it's like when someone tells you about what happened in a Transformers movie. <laughs> like, not, not but I think, I think Namco High was better than a Transformers movie. Definitely, much better. But, like, I'm more amused by someone telling me that the opening scene of Transformers 3 is, like, a 3D butt than actually seeing that. Right. I, I thought, like, I tried it. I had some laughs. I thought it was pretty funny. At yeah. times, like I thought it was a really well written thing. I thought I thought some of the you know the the sprites were gorgeous. I understand why they didn't charge for it because it was sort of kind of all over the place and very small and limited in scope. Well, they did charge for it. You could you could buy extra characters, right? Which is and that was different. And I mean, I don't know that I don't actually know personally anybody who did. I have to imagine a lot of people on internet bought it for the Homestuck characters because they were only available through a fifteen dollars DLC pack, which was the smartest decision they made about that whole project. Um, but. You don't get to act. I mean, that's fifteen dollars that literally goes into the ether now. Like yeah. you don't get anything out of that. Which is, I mean, that's kind of scary from a digital purchasing perspective. I, you know, maybe they'll release some sort of like downloadable version of Namco High just to keep on your computer. Uh, maybe the source code will come out or something. Or at least Date Night. I mean, Date Night is happening, so it's possible that you'll be able to download that and kind of just like install Namco High in some sort of way? Uh, Date Naito is exclusively basically for HTML5. So, I mean, it, it, I while I think it would be amazing if you, they could just say, okay, you know what, here's an executable. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it would actually work like that. Yeah, I, I figured it'd be something complicated. It's, you know, well, you know what, the... Uh... It's, I'm kind of glad that the whole project came together at all. It's nice. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it was nice. To, they had a Katamari comic that was spectacular. I mean, yeah. it was nice to see some of, some you know artists I, I personally really enjoy get to work on these things. It was weird that Namco Bandai was super concerned with building an audience for Legend of Valkyrie and Bravo Man, of all things. I can kind of get Galaga because they've tried to do stuff with Galaga before. They recently had Galaga Legions, I think, yeah. a couple years ago. They've, they also at one point were making a Galaga movie. Were they? Yeah, yeah. Wow. That um, I want to watch that. It might be in development hell right now. <laughs> but yeah, there was a Galaga movie at one point. But like, they, so I can understand that. But like, you know, Dig Dug, I mean, that's popular. But yeah. I mean, what is not really here? Right. I mean, Mr. Driller is great. But like, that game comes out once every, what, five years? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's It would seem like a weird project that... Uh, it was cool of them to try. But yeah. like, were they really expecting this to be a huge profit generator? Speaking of profit, though, um, Disney is going to be buying Maker, of all things. So Disney is eyeing the popular YouTube network in a deal that analysts say could be worth $500 million. Um, Maker, which is uh, the Pew Pew Die guy, right? Yeah, they are a C- bunch of YouTube channels. They also have stuff like uh, Total Biscuit, the Cynical Brit, uh, a lot of video game review stuff, a lot of Let's Play channels, and of course, probably most famous for uh, Pew Pew Die. Yeah. The um, his, it's it, he, the guy is technically uh, YouTube's biggest game star, Felix PewDiePie, um, last name Swedish. Hilberg, uh, I think. Yeah, says, last name Swedish. <laughs> last name last name Bork Bork. Um, <laughs> uh, it generates about five point five million views a day, which is crazy. Yeah. <laughs> um, the the revenue on that must be amazing. Uh, meanwhile, Disney is rolling up a company, Katamari, that now includes Lucasfilm and Marvel, which means we could see PewDiePie in um, Kingdom Hearts. Someone getting the more on the horn. <laughs> oh, that would be amazing. Just a YouTube comments level. Sora <laughs> has to brave the, the, the terrible forest of, of racism and homophobia. He has to make his own Let's Play of a <laughs> Disney movie. You have to. The only way to beat level four of Kingdom Hearts three is to make a let's play of level three of Kingdom Hearts three, and it checks your YouTube account, and then you can proceed. Sora plays Kingdom Hearts two and wonders how, where it all went wrong. 
The um... uh, this this wouldn't be the first time that large conglomerates have gotten interested in Maker. Uh, last year, Time Warner, who we'll talk about in a bit, invested thirty six million dollars in the YouTube network. Um, Maker's also recently struck an integration deal with Pepsi. You can't see my air quotes, mm-hmm. uh, which is meant to introduce revenues uh, that YouTube can't take a part of, uh, which means product placement. Yeah. So there's a growing confidence that YouTube celebrities are going to be kind of the new new stars in a way. I mean, they're mm-hmm. not, YouTube still isn't as big as TV. It's still not as big as movies, but it's growing. They and probably will never be that big, but they're definitely a bigger audience than the internet. They definitely have a bigger audience and reach than the internet's ever had before. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the problem, though, is that these, these guys are kind of easy to control. Like, let's be honest here. Yeah. The guy who runs Maker is basically one dude in his basement, you hand him any amount of money. I mean, I imagine he has integrity, but like, sure. I, if Disney shows up with a deal, you're gonna take that deal, right? He's not a he's not a reporter. He's not a journalistic organization. He's not, um, you know, he's not himself an artist in, in such a way. He is a businessman trying to kind of expose these guys under who who he sort of has kind of reign over. Yeah, um, which is an admirable process, and I'm and, and it's great. But at the same time, I feel like we saw it a couple months ago with the Machinima thing that. You know, Xbox, Microsoft paid Machinima to pay their guys. You know, if they, if you release a positive video about the Xbox One and use this tag, we will give you some cash. And it's like, no, it's it's not like I don't think these guys have integrity or have something that they believe is about being honest. It's about um, that, like, they don't have anyone to be necessarily beholden to. No one is going to, like, slap them on the back of the head. I mean, if you work at a journalistic organization, your editor will, like, knock you on your face mm-hmm. if you try to take these deals. This is, um, this is, they, there's no one to kind of, like, keep these guys in check. And I think the thing is that they're not really meant to be trustworthy sources. They're meant to be entertainment, which is what makes this kind of okay in a sense. Yeah. But the problem is that they are beginning to become, especially in the game sphere, they are getting review copies like anybody else. They are getting previews like anybody else. They are going to events like anybody else. And that means they should be held, I, in my opinion, and I think in, in, in our opinion in general, to that sort of standard where you are now becoming a trustworthy source. Yeah. And when you take deals like this, it doesn't quite look so good on you. It's like back when Nintendo and a couple other companies started selling, uh, sending uh, review copies to, um, like, just bloggers and, ran- mm-hmm. like, people who were kind of unrelated to games, like, people who were just, talk- like, moms and mm-hmm. parents who would get these games and they wouldn't have, like, anyone, they wouldn't have any experience with, oh, what do I do with, right. it's like, oh, I got this free thing, I'm going to play this free thing. Oh, it was fun. You know what? Yeah. I'm gonna have. I'm gonna talk all this praise about this game because you know what? I have no. I have no measure of criticism. And mm-hmm. but uh, even in that, that's just a free copy. They, they yeah. weren't paying them. Yeah. To you know, they weren't essentially the, Warner Brothers theoretically, or sorry, Disney theoretically for the next you know, I don't know, Disney Infinity Two. Everybody could get a free copy, and you have to talk positive about Disney Infinity Two, or you're just gonna because it, you know you 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 have fun with it, but. It's hard to say. And, I mean, for us, with our review policy, I mean, we return every game we get yeah. for review. Or we buy it ourselves. So Yeah, I mean, a lot of a lot of the time that for our review, review stuff, like, it's all, can we get access to this game? Will we have enough time to play this game? And um, is it, if, a, if someone like Nintendo can provide us a copy, then, mm-hmm. I mean, we'll take that and then return it. And then yeah. we, we have to then go build our own save file elsewhere. I mean, what is it? You spent like what, 24 hours straight basically playing Legend of Zelda? <laughs> yes, yes I did. Uh, my final save time was about 22 hours and that was uh non-stop because I got that on Tuesday and the game was out on Friday. So, like that kind of thing, like we would not play a game that way. Like that no. is not like, um that's and we do that before 
for review purposes. So I mean, like, we. Ha- I, I hope what we're saying is we're trying to defend ourselves. We're trying to look okay. Yeah. Listen, I think I don't think there is necessarily a problem here. If they were purely an entertainment organization, which yeah. I think that is what they are right now. But definitely moving forward, I think we're going to see these guys take not a journalistic stance, but definitely a we are the voices of authority stance. And I don't think the voice and I think the voice of authority has to be, hold, be beholden to its audience. Yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of more machinima, um, Warner Brothers is investing 18 million in machinima. Yep. Warner Brothers and machinima have a pretty tight relationship considering they produce the Mortal Kombat Legacy web series. Um, recently, machinima closed a $35 million round of investment from Google, and last week they laid off 42 members of their sales team, which comprised almost a quarter of machinima's total workforce. Yeah, that, I mean, that's a weird choice, I guess, to make. Uh, but then again, considering they just, you know, $35 million, Oh, we just burned through that $35 million. Now we can't afford to have everybody. $18 million isn't quite $35 million by any yeah. means. Um, still a ton of money. Oh, totally, right? It's like <sighs> millions of dollars are millions of dollars, regardless yeah. of how you cut it. Um, unless you're in L.A. And Machinima is a much bigger organization than the Maker, I think. Oh, no, totally. And they have so many more affiliates, and they do a lot more. I mean, they can do regular advertising deals with different companies. Um, at we There was that Microsoft thing a while <laughs> back. But, like, the, uh, the these guys they don't make as they probably on an individual scale don't make as much money as someone like Maker does because mm-hmm. it's basically just like a couple guys. Right. But with um, with Machinima, I mean, they have such a they have so many affiliates that they kind of make that up in just sheer bulk. And Machinima does actually have kind of programs that they're affiliated with that are journalistic. Yes. Which is what makes this weird. From Google, I mean, Google wasn't necessarily a... a, They they do a lot of game stuff, Machinima. Google, I mean, they do tech stuff as well, so that's a little bit complicated and and, and tricky there to say that's where you're funded from. Um, It's kind of scary to see these kind of fledgling companies get grabbed so fast. Yeah, and... Like, I mean, to be fair, there's a lot of also a mission of it is like, what is it, bro team? Right, yeah. Or, um, who's, or like, uh, best friend, let's, best friends play, whatever. And like those game, those let's play style stuff where it's just, uh, quick clips, uh, and followed by commentary, mm-hmm. that's not quite journalistic. Yeah, that's, that's, not get effect- that's not gonna get affected by it. We, yeah. I can, you, the money has to come from somewhere for those things, yeah, I understand. Yeah. And you're, I don't think your affiliation or the fact that your paycheck is being signed by Warner Brothers is really gonna change that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's the journalistic entities that are also within Machinima that are the problem. Uh, again, I, I think I feel like it might be need to made clear somewhere. Um, but I mean, it really does show. Yeah, like like we like we said earlier, like you said, YouTube stars are the next thing. Yeah, and it's. I mean, I wonder if Disney want if spending five hundred million just to get you know Pew Pew die. I have to wonder because I can't imagine. I don't know anything else on Maker that is that popular. It has to be. Well, it basically has to be that personality, right? Like yeah. you couldn't. You probably couldn't hire him to do any specific job aside from what he's doing, so you might as well just buy up his company. Right. I can't wait for the Pew Pew Die uh, YouTube, uh, YouTube Disneyland ride. <laughs> a magical tour through the comments section and beyond. Here's, a, here's an exact replica of his house. Here are his actual underpants. <laughs> oh, just somebody walking around with a giant Pew Pew Die head, like head walking around the park. Speaking of horror beyond... One can imagine. Um, China is making the fun box. <laughs> Which does sound like a horror movie. <laughs> it does sound like a horror kind movie. Kind of. Um, so only three months after uh, China lifted their, their ban on selling game consoles, China uh, has itself its first original game console. And it is not from anybody you'd expect it to be. Because it's not from anybody you've ever heard of. 
specifically the Chinese telephone network equipment maker, so the people who make uh, phone jacks, ZTE Corp, and the online game developer The Nine have partnered to make a machine called the Funbox. It has two gigabytes of RAM, a USB input, is Wi-Fi capable, has HD video streaming from USB ports, and is cube-shaped. They really made sure to note that it's cube-shaped in the press release. So, what are they making, like, Roku? Like, what? what is this? Like, I can't... They've not announced any games for it. The Nine says that they're in talks with Chinese and overseas developers to create Funbox content, which I presume has to be fun, just by the virtue of it. <laughs> um... It is The Nine is the second largest game company in China. They once held the distribution rights to World of Warcraft, and they currently operate Firefall and Planetside 2 in China, which is pretty impressive. Uh, meanwhile, Microsoft hasn't made good on their promises to deliver a Chinese-manufactured set-top box that plays games, and Nintendo is still vaguely entangled with the IQ 3DS weird players that they've been doing for the last 20 years there. So I guess they're the only game in town. I mean, a lot of this stuff has been... A lot of this stuff has been kind of created for the sake of um, foreign foreign workers who come to China and expect to have, like, the same luxuries they have in the West. Mm-hmm. Stuff like, oh, wait, I can't buy an Xbox legally in China? Well, that seems absurd. I'm not going to – I can't – if my leisure is not going to be here, I'm not going to move my whole family here. Anything – stuff like that. So the um, – but the stuff like the fun box, which just seems to be this is directly targeted towards the Chinese audience. Mm-hmm. And I can't imagine you're gonna be impressed because they have had access to things like like actual World of Warcraft and actual <laughs> video games for they, a long time. They play StarCraft. Yeah. You know? I I think we're they they play web games. They like these games. I don't I don't know what this is. Yeah. I really like the name. Yeah, I do <laughs> right? Um It's the greatest name. Well, you know what? Speaking of more stuff that's completely inexplicable, um, Ubisoft Toronto has announced five new games. Um, or, five. sorry, five. They have they have announced that they have five, five unannounced, unannounced games. games. So, but yeah, what? Um, <laughs> at South by Southwest, uh, studio manager Jade Raymond revealed that the studio is working on five games she can't actually reveal. Um, <laughs> so, I, uh, what? what? Uh, so, okay, so... My first reaction to this was, okay, clearly Splinter Cell didn't do well, and that's not too far from the truth. Splinter Cell Blacklist did fairly well received by critics, but didn't meet Ubisoft's sales goal. So, uh, Which sort of makes sense, considering that last one, Conviction, did, like, terribly. Yeah, I mean, they were handed off a property that wasn't doing so well, and it's been they've basically been draining that property of any actual unique content for mm-hmm. such a long time. That Splinter Cell, like, Chaos Theory is such a good, good. stealth game yeah. that... The most re- recent Splinter Cell games have have almost zero relationship to in terms of actual gameplay mechanics. I I I always have to bring it back to like the Splinter Cell series was so good until Clint Hawking left, and I stopped caring. Yeah, straight up, right? Like the the, the moment that the guy who was actually interested in the stealth aspects of a game like left, mm-hmm. like that was there was nothing else to it. The um, so Raymond is basically taking deciding that the studio from here on in is going to be making uh, smartphone and tablet games. Yes, uh, as she said at her presentation, a good game on those those devices is different from a good game on console. So I definitely believe that they deserve their own franchises. Meanwhile, there are rumors that circulating that one or more of the five games are actually still console games, including anything from a new Assassin's Creed game, the multiplayer component of a new Rainbow Six, or even Far Cry Four. And Far Cry traditionally has been handled by Ubisoft Montreal studio, so I don't know where that came from. But, well, Far Cry 4, um, I would be surprised if they were just handing that off, considering that, I mean, what was it? The ex- they, Far Cry was, it got a lot of attention for that expansion pack mm-hmm. that was... Oh, Blood Dragon? Yeah, yeah, Well, it's yeah, not yeah. really an expansion, that's a standalone thing, you can play without the original game. Well, fair enough, it was like, it was a, D- it was a DLC that, used it so, that worked, that had the whole engine in there, so you didn't need the original. But yeah. like, the, um, 
the they, stuff like weird stuff like that. I wouldn't be surprised if Ubisoft Toronto was working on. That would be cool. I'd be glad to see more of that kind of stuff out of them. Yeah, just have you know we have this engine anyway. Why don't mm-hmm. we do something like weird and crazy with it? Which is why I'm betting that the new game is probably that Assassin's Creed Pirate spinoff that's been rumored for a while. That'd be cool. I wouldn't mind that. Yeah, um, they're a relatively new studio. I mean, I, I imagine after Blacklist, they probably let go of a bunch of contract staff. Yeah. I can't imagine they have the staff to be working on five full games right now. No, I mean, to be fair, I mean, uh, George Brown College has basically become this funnel into mm-hmm. Ubisoft Toronto at this point. But And I, I knew a couple guys who were doing QA for when Splinter Cell uh, Blacklist was, uh, was hot in development. But the... Um, yeah, they, I can't imagine that they have enough people right now to act like... To be full scale on all these games. At most, they have, like... If they're talking about five games, three of those games are being worked on by, like, f- maybe ten people. Right. And like, I imagine some of them are, like, you know, IPs are just developing for the moment. Like, the stuff, you know, out of Santa Mo- Sony Santa Monica got canceled. Apparently, though, uh, what we found out this weekend, it didn't really get relevant. That Santa Monica stuff that got canceled last week, turns out that was actually far along in development. Oh, that's... Yeah, that's a, that's that's a shame. disappointing. Um, yeah, speaking of disappointment... <laughs> speaking of disappointment, the... Um, King. Everybody remember King? You remember King, Armand? <laughs> yeah, I just I can't even say it, man. It's it's so sad. So like <laughs> King was ripping off people with the with the copy by trademarking words candy and saga, and then they decide to file for an IPO. And um, King has finally announced how much their IPO is going to be worth. And they think it's uh, seven million. Seven, seven billion. billion. That's Sorry. a B, not an M. So I, w- it should be seven million. <laughs> that, that would be that would be optimistic for them. They expect to price their shares between twenty one and twenty four dollars, which would put their total value at somewhere near seven point six billion American space dollars. I, it, like focus on the space because I can't imagine anyone on this earth who would uh, <laughs> invest in King. In, yeah, yeah. Um, it would not only put them about like. Fifty-four percent higher value than Zynga, but also put them to uh, like just two billion less than EA. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> what is happening? Yeah, no, I don't think. I think there's something screwy going on inside <laughs> King. Like they're, they're they can't be thinking straight. Like. First, they applied for a trademark, did not get the full application through, and then started suing people. And then, and they start suing people who are completely unrelated to their game. Right. A la Banner Saga. We've talked about this a ton of times. The, um, but like, this is, like, pricing yourself at 7.6 billion, that's insane. I mean, their, their stock is going to tank so quickly. Right. Well, it's going to tank for today. Remember how the Facebook IPO was disappointing? Get some popcorn and watch this. <laughs> I've never been so keen on seeing a down arrow. Like, God. Just for context, remember, 90, there are 97 million Candy Crush users. That accounts for 80% of their total profits year, uh, over the last year. Before that, they were making, uh, I think, somewhere in the range of a million dollars. Now they make somewhere in the range of a billion dollars. Um, and their usership is steadily dropping over time. So like this money has to be so this money has to be like mainly based on future potential, right? Mm-hmm. King could probably make another Candy Crush. He could probably make ten new Candy Crushes. Is that is the only way I can see them justifying um, six point seven point six billion? I, I can't see anybody. I would not. I would not buy a stock in in King for my worst enemy. 
Oh no! Like that would just like it'd be a fun game, like to 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 have. It's like, like it's almost like a pet to see how fast you can watch it die. Yeah, like I'd I'd, I'd name it like uh, I don't know, like Kingy, and just like have it <laughs> Kingy, Kingy the Kingstock. Yeah, Kingy the Kingstock, and just have him like you know, I'd have a Tamagotchi for him. Like <laughs> speaking of dead animals, <laughs> PlayStation Home, it still exists. Um, so approximately five years after anybody stopped caring, PlayStation Home has trophies. <laughs> I'm not sure why it's not in the news, but it was just it was it was more like a, a collective surprise that PlayStation Home is, exists and is used by people. Yeah, I mean, you can get a T-shirt. <laughs> the um, <laughs> you too can earn chivos for remembering the days when owning a PS3 was a terrible mistake you made. The um, <laughs> why in the world <laughs> is Sony still like paying to keep the PlayStation Home servers running? Do people use that still use that Warhawk room to plan attacks? Yeah, I think it's like a lot of the times. I think when servers go off, it's because someone accidentally like was was dancing in another room and landed on a switch and said, "Oh, right," just rubs off a dust. This is still here. The um. The with home, I can kind of see if someone like just straight up forgot. But this seems like they were actively working on new things for home. Like, I, yeah, I I can't like. Oh, and good news if you played a lot of home and don't want to come back and have to redo all the achievements, they're retroactive. So if you already <laughs> accomplished something, you will get your achievement or okay. your trophy. Yeah. What I the person who has a platinum trophy for home is a person I never want to meet. <laughs> <laughs> what is it made penises rain from the sky oh isn't it just like dancing all the time yeah i mean i wish it was closer to second life it's like yeah it's like second life without any of the cool bits yeah it was like second life where i can't make my legs like taller than the mass of the universe itself <laughs> like the um i th- that stuff was what made second life fun i mean the playstation home orchestra which is say we're watching trailers for playstation 3 games from 2009 oh my god can't I still can't believe that I, I gotta, one of their features was you can watch a movie in this movie theater and like I could just like go to a movie theater. I could just turn, <laughs> Netflix is on the system. <laughs> I could just quit home. Like and you know what? Like I can turn on like I I have like a chat system. Like guys, I can I don't need to be. I'm in, holding a phone in one hand. Yeah, yeah. I don't need to. Anyway, that's it for news. <laughs> I, I can't talk about. Home. And that's it for news. Two weeks ago, Daniel and I went to the Vector Game Arts Festival. We talked to artists, designers, and theorists about games. And we're wrapping up with a couple standouts from the weekend. First up, what do you say when the military comes knocking? Alex Myers is a video game design professor based out of Bellevue, Nebraska. But years before all that, he was a Marine. College didn't seem like a possibility for, to me for money reasons. Um, I was working a lot, and uh, I kind of decided that you know, the military would help me pay for school. If I wanted to do that, it would give me some direction. Uh, and I went into the recruiter's office on Tuesday and left on Thursday. I was, I was training to be, well, like I said, security forces, which meant I was in the infantry. Um, which in hindsight was not a good place for me to be. Uh, it wasn't very challenging. It wasn't very interesting. It was, you know, 
lug your weapon 10 miles over here and then set it up and wait for something to happen and then lug it another 15 miles the opposite direction set it up and wait for something to happen um and then a lot of the people around me were uh, i'm trying to find a, like a diplomatic way to put this uh i mean for lack of a better term a lot of them were just violent idiots uh, which is not the most diplomatic way to put it, but it's probably the most accurate description. I mean, with lots of exceptions, you know, but there were a lot of people that were just dumb and then given license to affect all kinds of physical violence. And it was just, I don't know, one day I woke up and I was like, yeah, this is, this is not a place that I want to be anymore. He damaged his hip bone during a fall from a helicopter and was allowed to leave the Marines. Years later, he headed into a fine arts program in the Netherlands, and that's when the night-long games of Counter-Strike began. I was living in a different country, and uh, Counter-Strike was the way that I kept up with all my friends back in the States, um, and I would stay up really late in order to be able to play, you know, because of the time difference. Um, and, I mean, I was probably playing Counter-Strike 18 hours a day for months. I mean, probably three months, three or four months. I was doing this and while, while in grad school and kind of ignoring my responsibilities and um, it struck me. I mean, I, we would play the same maps over and over again. It never mattered what side I was on. Like it didn't affect the weapons. I mean, uh, I had my, my buy menu was all automated. So I would just hit one key and I would buy the exact same things depending, you know, it didn't really change um, based on what side I was on. And then the goals were more or less the same. It was just, you know, we, we would ignore kind of the external goals that that the game would give us, like, you know, rescue the hostages or don't rescue, you know, defend the hostages or, you know, set the bomb or defuse the bomb and just go after each other. You know, it was more like this giant game of tag than anything else. I would go to sleep and, and have these kinds of dreams that, that were based off the game. Um you know, immediately for like an hour or so after I got done playing the game, I'd constantly, my, my eyes would constantly be like scanning environments, looking for like little, you know, like imagining crosshairs on things and stuff. So it w was still a very, very physical, I, my, I still had a very physical reaction to it. Alex used that experience to make warning. Alex used that experience to make winning. Winning is a modified version of Counter-Strike Source. Two players are stuck in a tiny room when they're forced to look each other in the eye. One of them can shoot and win. But why would you? With all the elements of a game stripped away, all you're left with is an intimate look at another player. The idea behind it, I guess for me, or at least the impetus, was more about this relationship to violence that we have um, as people. I mean, it's very much a part of who we are. It's very much a part of our lives all the time. I mean, so much of culture and society is built around mediating this violence or suppressing it or, or coming up with alternative methods of arbitration, you know, like violence is sort of this default. And then we, we try to stack all of these um, structures and institutions um, around it or on top of it in order to filter it a bit. Uh, but then you have like, you know, the state, the idea of this, like the government is a, a monopoly on violence. Like they control this violence on a grand scale and even on a micro scale if you think about like police and 
um, firefighters and any any of these very physical but but government institutions, public institutions. So, you know, it, it resonates. And I was in I was in the Marines. I was in the military, and I was trained to do a lot of this kind of stuff. And it was so for me, it has a very um, a very personal connection uh, and a very well, but at the same time that I was trained to do this stuff, I was also very, very repelled by it. So it's weird. It's, you know, it's this, we live in an age where, you know, patriotism is an extreme, or patriotism has been taken to its extremes. It's not enough to just, you know, be content with your country. You have to be very, very vocal about it. Otherwise people, at least like where I live uh, in the Midwest, uh, you know, people get very weird if you aren't vocal about your patriotism and then the military is sort of wrapped up into that. Like that's to be patriotic is to be pro military for some dumb reason. Um, at least that's the common conception. And there's all these concessions made for people that, that serve in the military. Um, you know, I can't every time if I tell people around here that I've been in the military, the very first thing out of their mouth is thank you for your service. And I'm like, you really don't know what that means. You know, if you haven't been in the military, you have no idea. Uh, if you haven't been in my shoes and in the specific kind of situations that I've been in while I was in the military, you still have no idea and you probably wouldn't be thanking me. So it's it's this very weird idea that we as a culture have and I think that that feeds into you know, this widespread acceptance of militarized violence in video games. Alex now works at the Bellevue University where he put together their game design program. The military has a strong presence in Nebraska. People respect it, and there's a lot of patriotism in Bellevue. It wasn't long before military liaisons approached Alex and asked him if their students would be interested in building military simulations. When I first started, um, I, I got a, you know the school I work with or to work at um, has strong ties to the Air Force Base that's in Bellevue, Nebraska, and um, Strategic Air Command. And initially, I had been approached, um, or at least yeah, I've been approached and kind of pressured into working with um, working with the Air Force or other branches to create simulations. Um, now, there was never anything specific mentioned because I, I made it known right away that I wasn't comfortable with that, um, that I, I didn't want my students feeling like that was something they had to do. Um, so I've, I haven't been approached in a while. Um, I think I made it pretty well known that 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 wasn't something I, w- I wouldn't have my students do. Um, I do have one of my students right now. He's an air traffic controller for the Air Force, and we're working on building an air traffic control simulation uh, for training purposes. Uh, so it's about as close as we've as, as I've gotten while I've been there. Why don't you feel comfortable with it? Um, because I I think it. Uh, it's a complicated question. I don't want my students to feel like that's what they have to do. That And that's really what it comes down to. I don't want them to think that that's the only alternative to them. And then I don't... I mean, some of it comes down to structure for the, the entire program. Like, I don't have... I, don't, I just don't have the room within the program to, to make specific classes that are like, okay, you know, we're going to work on military simulations. Um... And I'm just, I'm, I'm really weird about the relationship between an academic institution and the military. Like, I feel 
It just, it, it, it weirds me out. Like, I, I kind of want, I, I feel like you lose some of your research freedom, um, your freedom of inquiry, if you are working for contract, essentially, for this, for any, for anybody, for any non-academic body. Um, so, I mean, in the way that I wouldn't, I've turned down oil companies that have asked for my students to make games for their websites. Um, I've turned down advertising agencies for the same reasons. It's like I want my students to be able to explore their own ideas first before I start peddling them out, I guess, if that makes sense. Like, I don't, I don't want my students to feel like they're being, that they're working for something other than their own ideas right now. Like, once they graduate, they can do whatever they want. I don't care. But I want them to have the freedom to make that choice while they're in school. All right, Alex, I thank you so much for your time. Yeah, absolutely. Alex Myers is an associate professor at Bellevue University. You can find his work at alexmyers.info. Now let's talk about a different battlefield, from war to hearts and minds. A couple years ago, Angela Washko was talking to her father when he asked, Why are you doing all this work with feminism? And I was like, what do you mean? And he was like, well, you know, like, feminism is weird. And I was like, well, what does feminism mean to you? And he was like, feminism is just something that um, butch, lesbian, um, angry dogs use to create more hate for men. I had been kind of sheltered from that kind of way of talking about feminism in kind of New York City and in the art world and in academia, where kind of tolerance and support for feminism is probably at its highest in those spaces. So yeah, my dad's sort of description of feminism sparked a reminder that I should be discussing feminism in spaces where it was kind of the least understood and most hated. And that began Angela's quest to talk about feminism in places where people were the least educated, like World of Warcraft. World of Warcraft remains the most popular, massively multiplayer online RPG. It's become the standard for fighting orcs and elves with your friends. But most players are male and often hostile to anybody who wants to change the community. The first times I started having these conversations, um, I was doing it on a really low-level character. Then I realized that I get a much different um, response from players when I'm using a, a character, an, an avatar that's uh, a much higher level um, and better gear and so on. Because when I'm doing it as a low-level character, I look like an outsider who's infiltrating the space. When I do it as a higher-level character, um, it's clear that I have done a lot of work um, within the game uh, for a long time and that I'm questioning the protocols for how the space is working from the standpoint of somebody who's used the space for a long time. So that, that in itself created a lot of, um, I don't know, it changes the way that I'm perceived and the way that people respond to me. Um, I noticed that when I am a better facilitator in the sense that when I make it clearer that I'm not trying to change 
operations. I'm not trying to tell anybody that what they're doing is wrong, but rather I'm trying to understand uh, how people react to feminism, how the space's language ended up the way that it is. And when I let everybody know that I'm open to kind of all responses, all definitions, and that I'm recording it as research and that it'll be presented elsewhere, I find that uh, there are people who get really invested in it and they recognize that they have a platform that's going to end up somewhere and that their opinion matters. And, um, you know, I always get dismissive people saying, oh, my God, do you have a computer in your kitchen right now? Um make me a sandwich, these sorts of things. But um, yeah, as I've gotten a little bit more, um, I guess the project has also made me a little bit more um, empathetic to um, a lot of different viewpoints that before I was doing this work that I would have been very dismissive of. Then there's this one story. In one of her early attempts, Angela came across a woman from the Midwest who was a hardline Christian. She had a fairly traumatic childhood and was undergoing a personal crisis. I guess I had this really interesting conversation very early on, or I find very interesting the conversation, maybe not interesting to everybody, but um, with this this player named Chastity, which right off the bat, I was like, oh my God, this female player is named Chastity. Like, wow, we are going to really get into it. <laughs> but she was a self-identified uh, 19-year-old, uh, six months pregnant, um, living in the Bible Belt in the U.S., uh, and she had extremely rigidly traditional views. She said, like, this is, my conversation with her was probably the most challenging um, of all of the conversations that I've had inside of the game. She said that um, anybody who has an abortion should be sterilized for life, Later, she said they should be sterilized and then killed. Uh, She also uh, confessed that she had been raped by a family member when she was 14 years old, but that if she had gotten pregnant, she would not have aborted the baby. Um, She talked about, oh my goodness, she talked about how women's uh, entire value in life should be on the basis of um, having children and being a provider to um, their husband. Um, She talked about how she is a housewife because she knows that it's what God wants from her. Uh, Just on and on and on. And like, all you have to do is look at my website for two seconds and you know that that is not my set of values and that my whole practice is largely about questioning any form of uh, sort of uh, lifestyle um, value creation, these sorts of ideas of um, what you should and shouldn't do um, as a woman and why those um, sorts of um, value judgments are created. So, yeah, I should by all means have been really angry with her, (laughs) but... So like she, that player, she really like changed me in a weird way. Like talking to her for so long, we talked for nearly eight hours. I was like up super late all night talking to her. Um, And she just really needed somebody to talk to about this stuff. Um, And she 
you know, she got actually a lot of people inside of the game were very angry with her and argued with her. And a lot of men came by and also told her that um, that's a good woman right there. Like, you know, these sorts of things. But um, yeah, she managed, I I started rethinking um, why, why somebody ends up with those kinds of value sets and, and how much of, um, of, what we do is is so determined by where we are and what we're exposed to um, and how up it is to, I guess, just like run around kind of judging someone who has such a different um, relationship to the world than you do. So yeah, that was kind of a big deal for me. Um, and it changed the project entirely because I was no longer interested in changing the shared language of the space and much more interested in, um, learning from it and um, analyzing it. Looking through some of the quotes from that discussion, I and mean, the one that sticks with me the most is, I was raped growing up repeatedly by a family member. If I had gotten pregnant, I wouldn't have murdered the poor child because the child did not rape me. Yeah. How do you, I mean, how do you react to stuff like that, even if it is coming from an avatar in a game? Well, I mean, I, I recognize, you know, it's not, it's not coming from, I mean, it's coming from an avatar, of course, but it's it's also coming from a person. And initially, I was concerned that I was being trolled um, by this person, but um, I am 99.9% certain that I was not. And um, I think I, I mean, I react to it with the the with empathy and the realization that like this space is a plat like it's a platform it's a speaking platform and unlike physical public space when if you go out into your public square with a, a megaphone you know and you start spouting your values and start spouting you know uh your you know comment thread sort of gun nut gun control uh anti-gun control sort of stuff that um, is also another thing that people spout in World of Warcraft and other online spaces. Like, if you do that in physical public space, there are consequences. People think you're crazy. If you do it in the wrong space, you can get arrested. If you, uh, you know, people will confront you physically. Um, there are consequences for that kind of behavior and a stigma attached to your physical body. And in these spaces, what I learned from doing this is that people have a platform, people have a, um, you know, they have a platform and a megaphone without the consequences that that entails in public space, without the sort of, you know, they're not going to lose their job because they think that you know women should only bear children live at home make uh, naked and pregnant and you know whatever all right i just like to thank you so much for your time thank you for having me angela washko studies gender and culture in video games you can find more of her work on behavioral studies on gender and world of warcraft on her website that's angelawashko.com Now, let's wrap things up. Vector came and went weeks ago, so it's about time we heard from its organizers. Martin Zeilinger. Diana Polson. Scott Deeming. 
Vector was a pretty big festival to be run by three people. The festival had multiple exhibits, arcades, a lecture room, machinima showings, and a couple parties. I caught up with Scott Deeming, Diana Paulson, and Martin Zellinger to talk about how they felt Vector went this year. So, uh, it's a day after Vector. How, do you, how are you guys feeling? Uh, well, for us, it's, it's uh, maybe the second to last day of the festival, actually, because we're taking down the shows and shipping the art back to the artists and uh, yeah, do some accounting and things like that. So it's not entirely over for us. But, I don't know, for me it's pretty exhilarating the way it worked. Couldn't have, gotten, couldn't have gone any better, I think. What do you guys think? I think it went fantastic. I mean, it's the bittersweet ending, I mean, because so, there was just so much going on, and now it's just time to pack it up and put it back in its box and hope for you know next year's one or the next thing. Yeah, I think there's this like uh, combination of exhilaration and extraordinary fatigue <laughs> that comes with uh, that comes with the day after uh, uh, running this thing and starting to disassemble the disassemble the exhibitions and stuff. There's definitely that bittersweet feeling, like you. We worked a week sort of in advance to get it going, and then you know, then we're in the thick of it, and then it it just goes, and then suddenly it's like. Wow, we're done. Okay, thanks everybody. Everybody who visited Toronto goes back to wherever they came from, and you know now we sort of like collect ourselves, like Martin said, pack up our gear, do our accounting, and then start thinking about what we're going to do next. Um, which is kind of crazy to think that I'm already thinking about that, even though we're not <laughs> done disassembling stuff. But it's definitely after some of the conversations with some of the people who visited this weekend is something that I'm like really, really eager to like think about. So uh, let's back up a bit. How did Vector begin? Scott has to talk about yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I guess it would be 20, August of 2012. Uh, four people came together, uh, Clint Enns, Christine Kim, and Katie Mickak, uh, and we decided to start uh, a festival together. And originally it was going to be like one venue with an exhibition and a whole bunch of stuff over a couple of days. And then as we met and uh, started discussing what we were each interested in, we expanded the scope of it. Um, and the whole idea was, you know, there, there are video game art parties and events and these kinds of things that happen. Um, but And I, even I was programming those kinds of events prior to Vector. And we kind of agreed that the conversation for us wasn't sort of in a place critically where we wanted it to be. Uh, so Vector became uh, a really good platform for us to have, have what we felt were more like was a more critical dialogue around around sort of games and art. So Toronto has kind of ballooned in terms of the sheer number of video game related events here. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's IGDA, Hand Eye, Gamer Camp. Uh, where does Vector fit in between all that? Well. Um well, first of all, there's a lot of room for all these events, and I think they should support each other as much as possible. And that's definitely the spirit with which we program events and, and, and partner with these other organizations. Um, but what sets Vector apart, I think, is that we have a stronger focus on um, contemporary art, that never really endeavors to be commercially, you know, commercial game-related um, production. And that's maybe a little bit different from some of those other events. Um, um, 
but those events speak to you know vector audiences and vector events hopefully speak to those other audiences as well so like i said i think there's uh there it's a big playground that everybody where everybody can play um and we do the the more critical art thing that sometimes gets left out a bit of discussions at some of those other uh, organizations' events. Hmm. Yeah. Give me an example of what you were doing on a given day. On, like, let's say Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> Sa- what was I doing on Saturday? Like, what were you doing on what, Saturday? Well, yeah, um, so sa- Saturday was a unique day because it's the... It's kind of the heavy day, right? How many hours of programming did we have on Saturday? We 31, I think. 31. Okay, so we have 12 hours from noon to midnight that the festival events were running, but we have so many concurrent events on Saturday that we had 31 hours of programming, which included the exhibitions being open, our panels, the DMG social, uh, our screening, and our performances. Um, so Saturday um, is a really colossal day because... Um, for me, uh, because what I, I started here, opened the exhibition, waited for a volunteer. I immediately then ran over to Interaccess to get the Glitch Jam workshop going. Um, partway through that, I turned around and left to make sure that our panel was kind of operating. And then I left partway through that to come back to Video Fag for 5 o'clock to shut down the exhibition to turn this space into our screening venue. Um, so setting up a laptop, projectors, speakers, chairs, all that kind of stuff with uh, with uh, Jordan and Will from VideoFag. And then I turned around once Martin was done um, uh, at the panel at Bentomiso, I turned around and went over to InterAccess to uh, set up the sound and the video for the evening's performances. Um, so, yeah. Was, oh, you remember so well. <laughs> I, I, I feel like I've been running around between venues so much that I couldn't tell you right now what where exactly I would have been yeah. on any given day at any given time. It's all a bit of a blur. I feel like I feel like the only reason I remember the schedule is because I had to like ingrain it in my brain so I didn't have to like reference any like day planner or schedule or anything. It's just like this is what my day is going to look like on Saturday. So it becomes very automatic uh, for me to just like boom, like run around. What about you? You were handling volunteers, so what was your day like on Saturday? Uh, Saturday uh, First of all, was making sure that people were where they needed to be, and then checking. I also do it all the, all the social media, so making sure that uh, tweets were being retweeted, and making sure that people got correspondences that they needed to get. Uh, I also spent a considerable amount of time uh, with the Avatar Orchestra Metaverse, uh, making sure they had what they needed, and going to the rehearsal and you know checking sort of final. Uh, final things and then I, I also ran over here for the evening screening to run the door and then I had to run all the way back to Interaxis again uh, when, I, when I say here I mean video fag uh, run to Interaxis again to run the door over there and make sure that our volunteers knew what they were doing <laughs> so there was a, a fair bit of running around as well for me who have you found really has attended Vector? You know two years now and I still don't really have my finger on the pulse of that um I think it's a healthy mix of people from both the art community and the game community. I think I saw both of those people out this year, even a little more. Um, last year, we sort of discovered that it was people who were like kind of caught in that weird middle space that we're actually talking about, which is that intersection of games and art, um, which is a fairly kind of niche concept, right? So... Um, the audience last year, I felt like, was largely artists who were participating. Um, 
and sort of people interested in those questions. This year, I feel like we actually expanded that and we managed to get people who are just sort of peripherally interested in either art or games or both. Um, but it's it's kind of like we're both we feel, I feel like this thing is both kind of like a like a bridge and kind of this weird liminal thing. Yeah, don't yeah. forget the um, it really speaks to people in the filmmaking or yeah. video art area as well as well as to people interested in uh, certain kinds of contemporary computer music and performance work. And uh, you know, I thought about this last night again like it's, it's actually kind of crazy how many different areas we covered what a th what thoughts exist for next year at this point uh more sleep <laughs> <laughs> and eating on a regular schedule <laughs> yeah actually one of the things that happens when you're in the thick of this is that like yeah those like those basic human needs that uh are important kind of get forgotten in the big scheme of things so like i literally ran around with a backpack full of cliff bars and vitamin water this weekend just to make sure that i could like i need some fuel you know um but like for next year i mean you know i i'd like in a in more serious way like um for me the strength of vector 2014 and this is something i've been really vocal about was the inclusion of other curatorial voices. So in 2013, four people programmed the festival as well as ran it. This year, three of us ran the festival, but we had a total of six people curating. Um, Clint Enns and Isabel Arvers curated film programs. Actually, we had seven people. There's, <laughs> my math is like totally off today. Uh, and then Sarah Brennan Lee Tussman from Punk Arcade also who came up. And I feel like the thing that we can do as a group the best now is if we're gonna have these conversations that sort of like curatorial or programmatic kind of vision and lens for the festival um, works best when we incorporate other curatorial voices because we've always incorporated other artistic voices that was the point but when we are able to include other people's sort of perspectives on this world I think that kind of enriches everything, um, and that's something I'd like to see more of. It also means we actually get to do less work. So. <laughs> All right, I'd like to thank you guys for your time. Scott Deeming is Team Vector. Daniel Paulson is Team Vector, and Martin Zellinger is Team Vector. That's it for this week. I'm producer Armin Igbali. And I'm featured editor Daniel Rosen. Built to Play was made with the help of Alex Myers, Angela Washko, Martin Zeilinger, Diana Polson, and Scott Deeming. For extended versions of the interviews you just heard, check out our website, builttoplay.ca, where people on Stitcher Radio and iTunes leave us a review so we know how we're doing and more people can find the show. But it has to be a positive review because we believe a negative review will make you get all the trophies at home. And if you don't, we'll be very disappointed. We're usually on the air in the Scope of Ryerson every Saturday at 1 p.m. and rerun every Monday and Thursday, also at 1 p.m. Plus, check out our website for our theme month, Why Do We Open Up Worlds? Uh, this week is an exploration as to why linearity is a bad word. And we update the website every Sunday. You can find us on Twitter at built to play and me personally at Florcon. And I'm Daniel underscore Rosen. And help, I've been trapped in PlayStation Home for the last five years. I can't escape. No! Thank you so much for listening.